Hello, I'm Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to Psychedelic Alex, the Law of Psychedelics, our ongoing exploration of the question of psychedelics, looking at it from every possible facet. In my interview today, I got to speak with Landon Bunderson, who is a PhD, and Kevin Lamson, and they both work and are co-owners in an entity called Pollen Sense. And as you'll hear in the interview, Pollen Sense started off as an atmospheric particulate company, but branched out into the industry of cannabis for multiple reasons that we'll get into because pollen in the atmosphere is a tremendous threat to cannabis crops. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the interview and a few takeaways that I want to tell you in advance as you're listening. Um, pollen Sense represents just one of multiple ancillary service providers to the cannabis industry and, and thus, in the broader sense, psychedelics, because cannabis is a mild psychoactive plant. Um, but this hopefully demonstrates that there are just myriad different legitimate, licit businesses that one can go into uh, that employ high levels of education, and you can earn a living and build a business and have a life by serving the cannabis industry, and, and by implication, possibly other industries yet to come. So anyway, I hope you enjoy the interview. I learned a bunch. It was absolutely fascinating, and these gentlemen are just wonderful to talk with. So enjoy. All right. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay, perfect. All right. How are you doing today? It's good. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. I'm excited to do this interview. This is such an interesting topic that like nobody knows about. So yeah, it's exciting to get into it. So, so while Kevin's connecting and does he pronounce it Kevin? Cause I noticed there's no I there. Yeah. He pronounces it Kevin. Okay. Fair, <laughs> fair enough. I, I actually uh, knew a guy who spelt his name uh, K E V E N and he pronounced it Kevin. So there are a lot of variations oh. on that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. Good deal. Okay. Hey Hello. I have a shirt that also says I'm billing you for this conversation. <laughs> You just can't see it. <laughs> um, yeah, this is the official Psychedelic Alex uniform. Um, yeah. In my first few That's episodes, awesome. I was taping, just grabbing stuff out of my closet, uh, and that got monotonous. And somebody got me this shirt, and I'm like, okay, that's the winner. So yeah, I, I now own this, no joke, in like seven different colors. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. That is a true story. So if you that's watch my, my show, you'll see this shirt change color. Um, <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, we might as well dive in. I'll, I'll do a proper intro afterwards, um, and I can just uh, tack that on at the beginning of the tape. 
So consider us officially on, uh, and, and here we go. So um, just to introduce you guys real quick to the show. So you, you may know from our past conversations that um, Psychedelic Alex is kind of my, my little baby. Uh, I authored a book on the question of the legalities of all psychoactive plant medicines, of which cannabis, although it, it is a mild psychoactive, does fit that definition. And for the past 10 years or so, I've been a, a cannabis attorney, and now I'm looking at these other substances and starting to question uh, you know, what sort of reform or points of view should take place, uh, if any, because m- maybe the answer is that the laws are fine as they are. So mm-hmm. the show is dedicated to an ongoing exploration from every possible angle, I- including also just you know, jobs that people could look at. Um, the idea being that this can and is a legitimate industry and there are places to grow and, and there are places that one can apply a variety of different college degrees and actually earn a living and, and make money and feed their families doing something beneficial to the public. So that's kind of the premise for the show. And we look at every topic and you're thinking, wait a minute, a psychedelic show, we're talking about pollen. Um, it's totally, totally on point. So that being said, let me set the stage for the audience, and it is this. A couple of months ago, I authored an article on pollen in the atmosphere and how that pollen could impact or affect cannabis crops around the country because of the airborne nature of pollen and its amazing abilities to get into crops. And you folks reached out to me because you had seen that article and asked if you could borrow it. Uh, or use parts of it, and I, of course, said yes. And that started the the greater conversation about pollen sense and what pollen sense does. So from that perspective, gentlemen, I'm going to turn it over to you. Who are you, and what is pollen sense? Well, uh, I'm Landon, um, Landon Bunderson. I'm the CEO of Pollen Sense, one of the founders. And my background is in airborne biological particulates. I'm an aerobiologist, and... My PhD studies were, were um, a NASA-funded uh, project looking at creating a forca- uh, forecast model for cedar pollen in Texas. And um, if you don't know, as background, pollen today, other than with our technology, is counted manually. And so that means somebody has to actually collect a sample that has been collected for 24 hours or seven days. They put it on a microscope. They look into the microscope and they count one by one each pollen grain. That's how even even in the 21st century, pollen has been counted. It's ridiculous. (laughs) And um, there's some reasons that it took so long to figure out how to automate that. Machine learning really had to grow up because pollen can be identified by its features, it can't be identified easily chemically and genetically is still too expensive. And so it was identified visually based on the features of the little pollen grains. So when I finished my PhD, I found uh, these guys, uh, Kevin uh, was, was one of them, who could help me create a, a AI powered sensor that collects all the particles out of the air images them, and then identifies them with artificial intelligence. So I'll let Kevin introduce himself, um, but that's kind of background. Okay, thanks for that. Yeah, Uh, I'm Kevin Lamson. Uh, I'm one of the founders as well, along with two other gentlemen who uh, sort of brought this 
project to fruition. Um, my role early on was to sort of support the nuts and bolts development, uh, a lot of the uh, the CAD work, the prototyping, the 3D printing, you know, how do we actually make the device? Um, everybody had ideas and somehow it's coalesced and transmogrified over the over the years to sort of come to what it is now, which is a functioning sensor that, like Landon mentioned, reports in real time. Um, my role has changed a little bit to where now I'm engaging customers more and uh, sort of reaching out and um, evangelizing our technology to the world. And, and I've really enjoyed that. So I have to say it's real like pleasure to um, have this conversation with you uh, and to, um, you know, I, I, in a hundred years, I wouldn't have guessed that I would be having this kind of conversation because it all started out uh, just with guys in a, you know, guys in a garage, essentially trying to, um, trying to solve a really thorny problem. Um, and so that we've come so far to where now we can give real time information about airborne particulates. It, it's really, it's really cool to me. And, and, and we've had a few instances over the years where um, that has been where we've seen interesting spikes in particles and we go, Oh, that's weird. And we check it out and we discover that someone was spray painting um, and, you know, moments ago they were spray painting and then we know about it or someone stirred up the dust and now we know about it. And, and that kind of um, sort of granularity and view of the world um, relative to airborne particulates is, is new. I mean, people have been sampling yeah. particles for a while, like Landon mentioned, sampling the air for different things. And, uh, and, and now that we have that kind of perspective is really revelatory in a way that is um, because it's timely, it gives you something to act on. So, um, you know, that's probably more of an introduction than you might have wanted, but that's, no, that's, that's, why, that's fantastic. That's what excites me. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, riffing off of that a little bit, if I can, I, I can remember decades ago when uh, the Chernobyl nuclear plant had its meltdown. Mm-hmm. You know, Russia didn't announce it. I think it was somebody in Norway who was doing mm-hmm. atmospheric detection and noticed the spike up in radiation, which in turn, you know, blew the lid off of, pardon the pun, because that is actually what happened at Chernobyl, but blew the lid off of Chernobyl. That was a bad example. I'm sorry. (laughs) But, you know, the point is you can detect stuff in the air and it can tell you a lot about the environment and things that are going on. So it makes sense to me. And I guess in the perspective of just checking on the atmosphere, that itself is not new, right? Right. Right. But to do it in such in, in, in such a quick and timely way relative to particles, you know, obviously people have been doing measurements uh, that give real time information. You know, they know when it rains because there's a sensor that tells them, hey, it's raining in this neighborhood right now or carbon monoxide levels are up right now on the along the freeway or whatever. So they've been able to get real time information historically in different domains. But to do it with particles, that's new. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and to do it and and to do it with identified particles, that's what's yeah, new yeah, because right. particle counters have been around for a long time, but we can tell you what those particles are. So PM 2.5, PM 10, the stuff you see on the news when you know there are wildfires or whatever. Yeah. That's been around for a long, long time. But being able to say X percent are smoke particles, right. Y percent are pollen things like that that's new that's what that's what we've added 
And, you, and your technology, Landon, can get as specific as the types of pollens? Yes. Okay. And yes. if I understood you correctly uh, a little earlier, too, you had indicated that um, your technology is new, and prior to that, literally anybody who wanted to do this had to sit there with a microscope and look down the tube and count manually one by one the particles they saw. Yep. That, yep. I don't know why anybody would not want to do that. That sounds like a party. <laughs> I question if anybody could do that. Oh my God. Um, well, and and I, that that brings up a really good point. There are only 852 pollen counting stations worldwide, manual counting stations. There are 30,000 air quality, government air quality stations worldwide. Why don't those government air quality stations have pollen? Because it's too expensive. It's too time consuming. It's too hard to find somebody to train. It's not practical. And by extension, when you look at some niche uses for pollen counting in agriculture, cannabis, that's the conversation we're having today. Indeed. Nobody can do that. Nobody, no farm, no operation could afford to hire somebody full time to be counting every hour around the clock to warn them when pollen is coming. Sure. Well, and, and that sets the stage perfectly. So I'm just going to use that as a segue. Uh, pollen. Why count it? Who cares? Yeah. Why would somebody want Who to count cares? pollen? Yeah. Well, we started counting pollen because of airborne allergens, because pollen is allergenic. And uh, I, I think we've, we've spent four, four and a half years working on identifying the allergenic pollen types. And we've gotten quite a bit of traction there. We have about 100 sensors out around the world, mostly in the U.S., and we expect that to grow rapidly. What we've discovered is that there are a few agricultural operations, a few different crops that care an awful lot about pollen, one of which is cannabis. And the reason you've got to, you've got to keep track of pollen in cannabis is because, as your article says, if you pollinate a female flower, you lose the value of it. It starts making seed instead of making all of the, the uh, psychoactive and, and all of the interesting molecules that it's been making. And so with our sensor, we can, as, as Kevin mentioned, we can monitor around the clock the pollen levels and we can alert people to that. Sure. And let, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the biology and put your degree to use here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get your money's worth out of your degree right now. Um, All right. Okay. So the cannabis plant, um, you grow it and you need females to flower, correct? There, there's no yes. male that we're harvesting for uh, medical or, or psychoactive effect. Um, so I guess for this conversation, we'll, we'll kind of push hemp off to the side, although for the audience's sake, it really is the same plant. Um, yep. Difference in nuance on how you grow it and a little bit of the genetics. Um, okay, so with the female, what is the risk of, of a pollen infiltration? It just puts it into a seed mode and diminishes its productive quality for other things. That's exactly right. So a female a female plant and that female flower is producing this sticky exudate, this, this um, 
material that that oozes out of the the female flower is rich in terpenes, THC, CBD, CBG, things that things that are interesting to to humans. And as it's producing this sticky substance, the reason it's producing this sticky substance, at least in part, is it needs a sticky surface for pollen to to collect on. So it's actually actively trying to collect pollen. And as it's out there producing this, it has these biological switches where if it encounters pollen, then essentially, I've said essentially too many times, but then the female flower says, mission accomplished, shut down all of the sticky stuff, put all of your resources into producing seed because we're, we're an annual plant. We've got to reproduce. And um, so all of the levels start to drop and they drop very rapidly. That sticky substance just goes away as do all of the interesting molecules that are in there. So basically for the cannabis plant, fertilization means party over. Yep. Okay. Yep. And, and that could be financially devastating. To That's true to... for humans too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I have many, many friends who have kids and they do describe that experience. I, uh, I, <laughs> my wife and I made a conscious choice to stop at house cats. And uh, I must say we have white furniture. So, um, you know, choose accordingly. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. Interesting. So, You've set the problem that air, airborne pollen can destroy crops, and, and clearly that means that um, cannabis cultivators would care deeply about this conundrum. Um, does it make a difference, for example, if you're an outdoor cultivator versus an indoor cultivator? Yeah, it absolutely does. For outdoor cultivators, they're always at risk, especially in areas where there's uh, a lot of production. And on top of that, hemp production. The hemp pollen, like you said, these are the same plants with some slight variability in genetics. And really what it comes down to is the THC level um, that defines hemp versus cannabis. So outdoor, outdoor growers are always at risk. Pollen can travel hundreds of miles. And if you, if you get that perfect storm, you could literally lose your crop from pollen released a thousand miles away. Now the risk for that is relatively low. Pollen as it disperses becomes less and less concentrated usually. And so it's really your neighbors that you're worried about. It's really the, the hundred mile or even 30 mile radius that is the riskiest. And there, there have been some good studies on different pollen types, including some cannabis hemp studies, but mostly it's in other crops, um, because of the the nature of the legality of cannabis, it hasn't hasn't been studied as much. But pollen can travel thirty miles and be highly concentrated, and can completely destroy a crop if it pollinates all of the flowers. For indoor growers, obviously there are kind of two two groups of indoor growers. There are the positive pressure sealed up warehouse growers that filter every bit of air that comes into that, into that area. And so their only risk is coming from within. If they're growing clones, that means they took a female plant and they took a cutting and they grew it from that. And then they took another cutting and they grew it from that. So they, they grow lots of clones. The risk for pollen is extremely low for those that grow from seed. 
they do a thing that's called feminizing the seed. They, they apply some chemicals to it to try and make sure that all of those seeds turn into females. The risk is a little bit higher there. And so, so there's the, the, the sealed tight ones where the risk is relatively low. If you're scouting your, your grow and you catch it early, you catch the male plants early and pull them out, then you should have very little risk. You should have zero risk. Right. For indoor growers who are kind of indoor outdoor, like a greenhouse operation where it's not filtered air coming inward, you have the same risk that outdoor growers have. And that means that your neighbors are, are causing you problems. We have found some growers that are, that are growing indoors that have breeding operations, which means they need pollen, right? They're selecting for new varieties. They're looking for new, um, new genetics, interesting things. And if they're not, if their operation isn't buttoned up, the pollen could leak from one grow operation to another, even in a, even in a sealed environment, you know, assuming there's a few leaks and, and some issues there. Hmm. One other thing that I want to mention for the indoor growers is this is, this is a risk for indoor growers and everyone else. And that is aspergillus spores. I don't know if you've read about aspergillosis, but if, if you, if you are taking a drag and you inhale smoke with aspergillus spores in it, you can get an infection in your lungs that can kill you. And we can also monitor for that as well. And um, obviously there's some post-processing uh, procedures that mitigate that risk, but that's also something that we can measure in the air. Hmm. And, and that's critically important, um, particularly here in my home state of Arizona. And I'll, I'll share two things with you. Um, one, <clears throat> we have this... Um, disease called valley fever, um, which is some sort of an airborne spore that pops out after rain, and you pick it up just inhaling dirt in the desert. Uh, It's common with dogs because people take their dogs out for walks in the desert, and they're much closer to the ground where this stuff emerges. So um, it's an omnipresent risk living here, and you don't really see this outside of the deserts because this is a, I guess it's a fungus that grows in the deserts. Um, but it, it can infect the lungs grow. And I actually have a friend who had that happen. And, uh, the only remedy they had to surgically remove a chunk of his infected lung. Um, so it, this is literally deadly seriously. I can appreciate that. And the other thing I wanted to share too, is that Arizona about a year ago, finally got a testing bill passed for our cannabis for the last 10 years, all that medical cannabis that was being sold predominantly was not being tested. Now it's mandatory for exactly uh, the things you're talking about, like aspergillus. So I can absolutely appreciate the importance of this, as can, you know, our roughly uh, 300,000 patients. And now uh, with Proposition 207 having passed in Arizona, Arizona's fully recreational. So literally any adult, 18 or over, can walk into uh, a cannabis shop and and purchase some. Um, Or excuse me, 21 and over. My bad. Um, Sorry, 18-year-olds, you're going to have to wait. <laughs> I got excited there for a minute. <laughs> be, be patient. It'll, it'll be there for you. Um, interesting. Okay, so um, let me double back if I can also, because we started talking about cannabis, and I, I wanted to put hemp off at the side, but then you brought it back into the conversation at just the right time. Uh, and, and I want to emphasize the point for the listeners, is that uh, a pollen infestation in a crop uh, depending on your crop, can ruin it no matter what and in two directions. Meaning, if you're trying to grow high-quality cannabis 
for medical purposes or recreational purposes, you're trying to hit certain THC levels, CBD levels, etc. A pollen infestation can ruin that and drop your your numbers down, correct? Correct. And and correspondingly, if you're in the hemp biz, you're desperate to avoid THC because if you exceed the federally approved THC content, you're now in the zone called hot hemp. And um, that may mean you have to destroy your crop, depending on, on what state you're in and what the regulations are. Uh, for example, Arizona doesn't really have uh, much in the way of an ability to mitigate hot hemp. If you're hot, too bad, you got to destroy it. Um, so pollen infestation could turn a perfectly good hemp crop bad just by raising its THC levels, right? Pollen can can uh, definitely destroy a, a hemp crop, and and it also, I, I mean, there's industrial hemp out there, which is obviously for fiber, and they use it for concrete, and they use it for, um, you know, clothing and things like that. Oh yeah. But also, uh, the high dollar uh, hemp is being produced for the CBD and the CBG. Um, cannabinoids that are interesting and um, not psychoactive, but definitely active in your brain, those levels will drop as well. And so if you have a high value hemp crop, you're losing your value as well, because that sticky substance, it's always about the when that female flower is producing the, the interesting stuff in the sticky substance, that's that's where all the high value comes in hemp and cannabis so cbd and cbg are correlated with that sticky substance as well mm. you pollinate that all of that goes away indeed all right. and then additionally you know one other thing is uh we we have conversations with hemp growers all the time who are concerned about lawsuits from the cannabis crowd saying, hey, you ruined my crop. You're not controlling your pollen. You better control your pollen. Um, and so we're, we've actually, uh, we're setting up a, an operation. I can't tell you where, but uh, setting up a monitoring operation for a hemp grower to protect the downwind cannabis growers. Mm. Good point. Um, and I can analogize, I guess, a little bit to uh, Monsanto. Um, for folks at home who may be listening, um, Monsanto is known to have a lot of patents over its various uh, seeds and genetics, and it licenses, doesn't sell, it licenses seeds to farmers to grow Monsanto-licensed patented crops. And sometimes those seeds can blow into neighbors' yards, knowingly or unknowingly, and Monsanto is kind of known for knocking on those doors and saying, hey, you're growing our crops without our permission. So the liability risk you've described is, is a real thing that people ought to be concerned about. Yep. There's precedent and, and you're, you're the attorney, not me, but there's precedent for, for how, which direction the, the liability turn, runs and it, it's not favorable to, to the hemp growers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even if you've got the winning <laughs> argument, you still have to spend the money presenting it. And yeah. who wants to do that? Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, it's a conundrum for sure. Um, okay. Interesting. So when, when did you guys first realize there was this uh, issue or opportunity in cannabis in particular? Because from what I understood, you were already doing these different particulate counts. So this was already a business you were operating in. So when did cannabis sort of flash onto your radar screen? 
So two years ago, it flashed onto our radar screen. There was a grower in the eastern U.S. who was concerned about pollen in their grow house. So they were kind of indoor slash outdoor growing operation. And uh, we we knew that I'm, I, I have a pretty good background in agriculture as well. And so I knew that it was a risk. I knew that it was a thing, um, but didn't really recognize we were we were pretty focused on airborne allergens um and so we we got them a device and and they've been using it ever since they 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 get a lot of good use out of it they really like it um we kept it pretty simple and then uh last year we started getting people coming out of the woodwork um asking about it and airborne allergens was humming. It's humming along it, it because we're most of our sensors go to smart city, municipalities, government operations. The sales cycle is quite slow there. Um, the sales cycle is m- much quicker in cannabis. Cannabis is well-funded. And frankly, I'm, I'm fairly interested in agriculture. I've actually spent yeah. my, my daytime uh, working for a fertilizer company for the last seven years. And so uh, when, when I really saw the opportunity there um, and, and I'm just going to throw Kevin in here when we saw the opportunity. Have a question about psychedelics and the law. You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank mm-hmm. you.